Blog Talk Radio. Blog Talk Radio. Right now. Yeah. Welcome to the movement, baby. We're going to change education. Check out shungleblade.com. I'll say it again, shungleblade.com. Teach and reading uniquely to reverse underperformance. True school is here. Now let's be clear. Our impact will be enormous to the people across this nation. Eagerly anticipating a sound from the streets that's so unique it'll transform education. This is school, the killing field, where they kill a lover learner and then not children for real. That's the deal. Now we gotta change things around, close gaps down. This is a new sound, true school. This is this radio show, shovelbig.com flow, case you wait, no. And now we gonna change things. One school at a time, one rhyme at a time. Yeah, we gonna shine. Time to shine media, yes. Yeah, we've been blessed, putting suckers to the test. So, teaching reading, so uniquely. That's right. Gotta make you think deeply. Uh, teaching reading uniquely. To reverse underperformance. True school is here. Now let's be clear. Our impact will be enormous. To the people across this nation. Okay, welcome. Welcome to True School Radio. This is your host, Shango Blake, and we have another exciting show for you. Uh, This is a show that is going to be dedicated to the mother of the civil rights movement, Rosa Parks. But before I get started, I'd like to give you the call-in number, which is 213-943-3618. Press the number one on your keypad if you have any questions or comments. Uh, I would like to remind you that uh, the purpose of True School is to start a discussion about the issues that are important in education with the purpose of providing solutions to those issues. If you would like to get in touch with me and find out more about my work, you can reach me at www.shungleblake.com and find out about my company, the True School Consultant Agency. You can also like us on Facebook at shungleblake.com and follow me on Twitter at shungleblake. Uh, last week, we, we played a very important program about the importance of historically black colleges and universities. Uh, our guests was Thomas and Joanne Garcia from the HBCUKids.com, and they gave us a very, very enlightening discussion about the traditions of historically black colleges and universities, the works that continue today, and the networking that is so important between alumni and preparing the next generation to go to these institutions while strengthening these institutions to become extremely, extremely powerful for our community and for our people. This week, we're going to be talking to Dr. Bessie Blake, author, lecturer, former dean of the College of Rochelle, and a friend and supporter of the mother of the civil rights movement, Rosa Parks. I have to say, if you remember 
some of you who've been following us from my first show, that uh, I spoke about my influences in terms of me coming of age. And I told you about my experiences from both my mother and my father. Uh, my father, Professor James Blake, uh, and my mother, who is Dr. Bessie Blake. And it is going to be an honor for me to talk to her about her work with Rosa Parks and her work as an educator in general. And so we hope that you are, you know, get ready, get prepared for a wonderful discussion, uh, an informative, enlightened topic, and we're going to get into it in a few. I have to say this to you, that we're celebrating the 100th anniversary of the birth of Rosa Parks. And so you know what she has meant to our community and what she has done uh, for us. There are a lot of things that we do know. There are a lot of things that we don't know, and we're going to get into that when we come back from this commercial break. This portion of the keys was brought to us by Rafika Consultants and Services, LLC. Rafika Consultants and Services, LLC, is on the cutting edge of emerging technologies for designing online classes and providing face-to-face and virtual technology training or help with computer programs, web design, and graphic arts. We also provide biography writing services for websites. For more information, give us a call at 631-399-0149. That's 631-399-0149. On Blog Talk Radio was brought to you by The Fluffs Present the Alphabet, now found in paperback, sporting a five-star rating on Amazon.com. This portion of the key was brought to us by Moon107.com. Moon 107, fashions and gifts that bring out the best in you. Moon 107 is an online retail store featuring women's and men's clothing and the gift shop. The women's shop features stylish tunics, suits and accessories and offers the well-dressed woman an outlet to find the perfect gift for self or for someone else. The men's shop offers classy French cuffed shirts for the well-dressed man. The gift shop offers organic skin, hair, bath accessories, and inspirational music imported from Africa, India, and Asia, as well as jewelry and accessories. Moon 107, fashions and gifts that bring out the best in you. Don't forget to visit moon107.com. Welcome back. Welcome back to True School Radio. I'm your host, Brother Shungo, and we're going to get into a very powerful discussion with Dr. Bessie W. Blake. Uh, As I said to you before, it's it's an honor for me to be able to interview her. She is my mother, and, and she is a powerful author, educator, administrator, and someone who has 
contributed to the improvement of literacy within our community. I'd like to start off by just giving you some brief information about Dr. Bessie Blake, and then we're going to get right into this discussion. So Dr. Bessie Blake is an author, educator, and administrator, and is internationally known for her work in the field of adult education. She resides in Queens, New York, with her husband, Professor James Blake, and they are proud parents of four children and seven grandchildren. She is a graduate of Southern University in Baton, Louisiana, Baton Rouge, Louisiana, excuse me, and she received her master's degree in English with a minor in history from North Carolina Central University and her doctorate from Teachers College in Columbia at Columbia University prior to her postdoctoral work at Harvard University Institute for Management of Lifelong Education. She's served as an English teacher for the New York City Board of Education. Her interest in alternative models of learning led her to serve three years as an instructor at the Muhammad University of Islam in Harlem. She then became dean of the College of New Rochelle School of New Resources in 1982, assuming administrative and academic responsibility for seven campuses in the New York metropolitan area. Among her many accomplishments during her tenure as dean was the establishment of the Gordon Park Gallery and the Cultural Arts Center in the South Bronx and the Rosa Parks campus in Harlem. Lasting friendships were formed with both of the iconic parks. Through her close association with Ms. Parks, Dr. Blake was able to bring the mother of the civil rights movement to Southeast Queens on several occasions. Most notable among those visits was Ms. Parks' address to the children of IS-231 in Queens on her 30th anniversary of the Montgomery bus boycott. Dr. Blake ended her tenure as dean in 2001 to pursue her passion for writing. In June of 2006, her first book, Speak to the Mountain, was published. In 2007, she won a USA Book News National Book Award. Gordon Parks, in his foreword to the book, says Dr. Blake has a spiritual strength that propels her over mountains too high to climb into arenas of service to others. And uh, before I introduce Dr. Blake, I just want to remind you that you can call in at 213-943-3618. Press the number one on your keypad if you have any questions or comments. Well, Dr. Blake, are you there? Yes, I'm here. All right. Well, I know, it was awesome listening to that uh, kind of like journey through my life to God be the glory. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that's, that is absolutely, and uh, I just want to thank you for joining us and being a guest on True School, and uh, we are proud and happy to have you here. I've already made my disclaimer to let everybody know not only are you Dr. Blake to the community, but you are mom to me, and yes. it's, it's always important for us to, to – and I want to say this, speak to your parents out there. You know, you were never too old to – speak to our parents and get wisdom, knowledge, and understanding. So thank you again for coming on True School Radio. Well, I'm I'm happy to be here, uh, Principal Blake, who's <laughs> me. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I want to start off uh, first um, and jump right into the, to the question. Um, right now we're focusing, and we have been for the last, uh, I would say, three or four shows on the significance of historically black colleges and universities. So before we get into some of the, the discussion and some of your work in terms of adult ed and your work with the, you know, icons like Rosa Parks and Gordon Parks, uh, I just want to 
give the audience a little bit about you in terms of your background. I know I said it in the bio, but I'd like you to speak to it. Now, you went to two historically black colleges, correct? That, that's correct. I went to two historically black colleges, but I also went to uh, all-black, uh, parenthetically, segregated K-12 through schools in Texas and Louisiana. Mm. Yes. Wow, that's gonna well, that's gonna change my question. Cause I was gonna ask you, what was your experience in these historically black colleges? But I'm gonna take it a little deeper. What was the experience with the black colleges that you went to, and also going to high school in in in, a, in the segregated South, and how did it prepare you to later uh, uh, pursue your training? in an Ivy League institution such as Columbia University? Well, my experience um, in, like, all black uh, school settings was one of being in a colorless environment. And I know Mm -hmm. that sounds kind of contradictory, uh, but even though the schools were all black, color was not something I focused on during my high school years. I was Mm -hmm. a student, and I was treated like a scholar, uh, so I became a scholar, and I was pushed by my teachers beyond what I thought I could achieve because they had high expectations. When I was in high school, uh, failure was not an option for me. Hmm. Uh, it was it was like, uh, I don't know, it, it was segregated, and it was like being in a community where I knew that whatever I did academically stood on its own merit so that I didn't have to weigh myself uh, or burden myself with the questions of race at that point in my life, mm. not, not within the school setting. Now, this is high school. This is high school. And another crucial part of that experience was the the integration of my academic uh, development with my social, ethical, and my moral uh development. The two packages were were blended into one. So I was expected to do my work and to be respectful of my teachers, to be respectful of my classmates, and to follow the school rules. There was, uh, you know, a time to work and a time to play. And uh, even in school, in high school, I would get the mother look. It was, you know, all I had, all they had to do was (laughs) give a look and I straightened up. (laughs) Wow. Now, were you, now, now, at this time in the in the in the South, were your teachers and your instructors were they predominantly black? They were all black. Wow. It, it was an all black environment, it, but but for me, it was colorless. I didn't have a you know I didn't have this sense of always you know trying to filter through uh, is this happening because I'm black or is this happening because I'm you know, uh, you know, is this discrimination? It was an all-black environment, and there was one thing: you do this work, Bessie, you get it right, hmm. and, and and you did, behave yourself. <laughs> and did this, and, did, and and your experience from from high school, did it carry on into uh, your your experience at historically black colleges like Southern University and North Carolina Central? Well. The experience that carried on was the emphasis on scholarship and the emphasis on a certain code of of conduct. 
Uh, I remember when I was in college, uh, they no longer called me Bessie. They called me by my maiden name, Miss Waits. And mm-hmm. there was a, a, it, 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 it engendered a feeling of adultness and of responsibility, so I acted more responsibly. They would look at me and say, well, well, Miss Waits, uh, I, I, you know, I can't believe you uh, didn't do this or, or that the, the quality of this paper is, is, is at this level. Uh, so that, act, that emphasis on scholarship continued, but for the first time, color entered my learning environment because I was also told that I had to work harder as a black student. Mm. That the students across town at LSU, uh, they were doing much more than than I was doing, and they knew more. And that in order to compete in this society, I had to really buckle down and work, work, work. So it was not until I had gone on to uh, uh, North Carolina Central University, where the same emphasis was dual on the academics. And all you got to be able to compete in a white world. And this is, and no constitute was a graduate level experience. That was the graduate level experience where I got a master's in uh, English and a, um, my minor in in uh, social social studies. Now That's history. Now. Now when I got that experience, I just want to. I'm sorry, taking that experience from from high school and and, and going from high school to uh, college, to now your graduate studies, and that that, that focus on you have to be um, uh, competitive, you have to be twice as good. How well did that prepare you to enter into an Ivy League school like Columbia and and be competitive in terms of the, the kind of academic scholarship that you were producing? Well, I, I found out I was overprepared. Wow. <laughs> And I say that jokingly. When I got to uh, Columbia and I found out that the students were not working half as hard as I had been working because it had just been sort of drilled into me mm. that I had to go above and beyond. Uh, and and so I was saying, gee, you mean I can just take it easy here? However, I did not... Um, you know, changed my way of of uh, working my scholarship because by that time it had become a part of me. This rigorous application of myself to my studies, and and I thought that was a good thing, and I believe that's why I excelled because I might have overstudied. I don't know. It seemed like I was studying much more and just you know, than than other students were studying. So you had been given the kind of discipline, structure, and expectation that allowed you to excel in those environments. Oh, yes. Wow, that that is that is something. Now, I, I, I see that you've had a diversity of teaching experiences. You've worked for the New York City uh, Board of Education. You've worked in adult education. You've, uh, I remember you homeschooling us. And also, you worked uh, for Muhammad University of Islam. What, what have uh, have you learned from these experiences in terms of properly educating our children in our community? 
Well, I learned that children are children, no mm. matter what community. <clears throat> and our children need what all children need. They're not a breed that's set apart with special needs. They need caring teachers. They need individualized attention. They need adequate resources. They need parents who walk the distance with them. And they need the dots of their lives connected. And by that I mean no child should have to bridge the gaps alone between home and school and community. Every child needs responsible adults doing that for them. Mm-hmm. And our children are no different. They need to see how all the segments of their lives, uh, you know, come together and work together. Uh, let me just give you an example. Uh, when I was growing up in Louisiana, I saw my teacher in church on Sunday morning and then at the store on mm-hmm. Saturday or after school and at the beauty parlor and at other places in the community. Uh, that was also my experience as a teacher in Queens. Uh, my students saw me working in the garden in Laurelton. Uh, I was in a position to um, open the school to the community during the Ocean Hill-Brownsville uh, strike back in the late 60s. Uh, I was in MGT classes on Saturday afternoons with my students when I was a teacher at Muhammad University of Islam. So these are but, you know, a few examples of mm-hmm. how the child can experience the entire segment of his or her life. And I know it's a cliché, but it does really take the whole village to educate the child. And, and you bring up something that's uh, with your experience that's so um uh, critical is that 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 the teacher you as a teacher was a te- was an educator that was also a person that was seen outside of the controlled environment of the classroom, and you were uh, seen as a as a member of the community. And even in your own experience, you experienced this with teachers. And um, you know, a lot of teachers today uh, are, are are very stressed by the social issues and things that visit the classroom, and and, and uh, there are comments that are often passed like, well, you know, it's not our job to to um, uh, deal with these social needs. Our job is just to teach the, 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 the young people whatever the curriculum says to teach. And I, I want to get your, your, your thoughts on that and then ask you what advice would you give teachers about, uh, about, about how to deal with uh, many of the social issues that, are, that 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 they come up against when they're trying to teach today. Well, I think it it um, well since it's this Valentine's Day, it's all about love. <laughs> <laughs> I think that you know the children can sense sincerity, and if we as educators, allow them to get to know us in a different way, to get a chance to see a different uh, a side of us that is really very helpful. It uh, helps us to meet the students where they are and then carry them forward. For I'd like to use you as an example since you're such a big part of my own experience. 
uh, when you work with Uh-oh, students. Don't, don't, don't. Don't 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 tell on me now, Mom. <laughs> no, I'm not telling on you. You know, I might do it a little later on, but not at this point. <laughs> but when when you were, you know, working with students and you wanted to, to for them to see a different side of you, so that you could then take them forward, you engaged them in rap. Yes. And and so that was a way of connecting to their community. So what is the talent that you have? For mm. me, I might do, uh, uh, when I say you, I'm talking to the teachers, I might do a writing workshop in, in a community mm-hmm. and not doing, I don't mean a grammar workshop, I mean, uh, you know, I might do creative writing or poetry or something of interest to students, to to young people. And then they get a chance to see a different side of me. Or I might tell them to come help me do the gardening if I, if they were in my community. So it's a matter of, of seeing that student as, as a, a whole person, not just somebody that you have to teach the test to or get to get the grammar correct, but looking at the whole person. You know, and, 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 that, and that brings us right to our next question, because there's such an emphasis on on teach, teaching to the test. And um the 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 argument or the the the, the 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 point of view of the teacher is or many teachers out there is that they feel that they they're losing something with such a stringent strict curriculum in terms of teaching to the test. My question is as you know as I want to speak to the author side of you what advice could you give teachers about the process of writing? And what I mean by that is, is there a way to effectively engage young people in the writing process that also allows them to meet the standards that the teacher that the, that the test is supposedly assessing? Uh, yes, I just wanted to back up for a moment in terms of of reaching the child and say that. I, I'm a, a, a proponent of experience-based learning. You know, mm. start with the student experience and move forward. Mm. And um, that applies to writing, too. But the first thing I would say about the writing process, that it is a process, and it requires patience on the part of the teacher, and it requires patience on, on the part of the learner. And... I, my experience says that too often we focus too early on writing as a product. Mm. But writing is really a process that starts with the student's discovery of a topic about which they have a passion. I mean, that's how I, I approach my writing since my first book. I have people come to me and say, oh, Dr. Blake, uh, you know, you should write this, and I know this great story over there. And I, it, it might be a wonderful story, but if I don't have that spark, that passion inside of me, then I'm not motivated to write. So writing is a process, and I think there's a passion that has to be underneath that, that, that drives that process. But just to get more specific, the first step in the process is identifying something worth saying, you know, mm. that you worth saying. 
the most frequent response I get from students, whether they're younger students or adults, is I have nothing to say. So you have to find a way to unlock that richness that is, you know, inherent in all of us. And I've found it helpful, as I said, to draw on a student experience, whether that student is in pre-K or an adult. For example, if you take a three-year-old who loves the color blue, you start to verbalize that interest. You you point mm. out style. You know, there's a blue bowl. Or, oh, did you see that blue bird? Or, you know, That's a beautiful blue shirt. And then maybe you pass them a blue crayon and say, let's color this flower blue. These are kind of free associations that the child will probably, um, you know, move them to the writing process. And so eventually you can get them to write B-L-U-E, blue, and that's Mm -hmm. their first writing experience. With the older student, it's, you know, it's how do you go from the the tear of the blank page and get started? And I, I find... Many students are really frozen, like, you know, again, I don't know what to write. I've done free writing exercises. I've I've recorded the spoken words, had them transcribe it, and then put, you know, into the written form, and then look at what you have on the page and see if there are patterns that suggest a topic. And then once you get to a topic, I know this sounds like a little short writer's workshop, but once you get to the topic, be prepared to write uh, several drafts or to see the student through several drafts of that topic. That's why I'd say it takes patience. So I'm listening to you. And I'm your job myself. early on oh. is is to knock the editor off your shoulder. Don't mm-hmm. be concerned about you know the product but get as much as you can on the page regarding your, your topic, and then you have something to carve away at. You have something to edit. You're not so reluctant to let one sentence go. So, that you know, that, that I found those kinds of steps helpful in taking the student through the writing process. Uh, once you're you right. It is a writing process. Um, and, and, and I'm listening to what you're describing, and you're right. It really is a process. And, and when I think about even my own experience in, in school and, and some of the current discussions that happen around writing and reading, part of the problem, I think, is that uh, we approach uh, writing with the attitude of, that it's something that we need to learn that's outside of us, outside of ourselves. And what I mean by that is that uh, what you were saying, writing from the perspective of interest, you know, getting, you know, uh, that that writing is a means of expression. It's, it's an opportunity for you to voice something that is of concern, of importance, or or value to you. I, I think back on on uh, some of my experiences, and it was just we were learning the mechanics of writing without the element that you're talking about in terms of we're learning the elements, we're learning the structure, the form, the style, the craft of writing, because it's going to allow us to have a voice in something that we want to say. Yes, and then we can start from the concrete of our experience and then move to the general, and we can 
start freestyling in our writing and then move to the more structured and the more formal. The mm-hmm. uh, the last part of the the writing process is is to to uh, to edit to be concerned about grammar and mechanics like spelling and you know who is my audience and you know you know how is this organized. But if we start that up front, then we 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 kind of clam up and we chop up our ideas before we can really get them going. It seems like based upon what you're saying, and 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 I'm just thinking about, I'm thinking this out. That assessments really should be assessing the process instead of the product. That it should actually be an assessment of how the student is going through the process of writing and developing uh, uh, their 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 piece uh, or their voice or their paper. I think that that would be a, a better way of really gauging whether or not the student is actually being educated and getting it. That that's correct, and um, it's also you know uh, assessing and and guiding the student through the process, and letting the student have ownership of the process. And yes. so then you know there's there's a responsibility on them. Like I, this is something that I really want to say, and I own it. And and then you're there to facilitate. And to to the empowerment of that student as a writer, because they have oh, wow. something to say. I mean that you know, um, it's a great self esteem builder too. Because the one thing, if you start with the student experience that you're expert on, it's like, wait a minute, I am expert about me. I know what's mm-hmm. going on inside of me. I know what experiences I've had. So if the student starts out uh, replacing that what I call terror, with like a positive step forward. Like, okay, I start out with this, this I know. Absolutely. Well, let me just say this, 213-943-3618. Press number one on your keypad if you have any questions or comments. We are speaking to Dr. Bessie Blake, author, dean, former dean of the College of New Rochelle, former assistant to Rosa Parks. She's worked with Gordon Parks, and we're going to get into uh, those experiences. But if you have a question, comment about what she's saying, please call us. And, again, the number is 213-943-3618, and press number one on your keypad. Now, your experience, and we spoke about it before, and the diversity of your experience in terms of you being an educational leader, I mean, you worked in public education, and you you worked as a as a as an English teacher, implementing uh, the things that we're talking about in terms of the process of writing. And and you had mentioned earlier, uh, you know, that sometimes people get frozen or stuck, or they struggle with uh, getting out what it is that they want to say, or they think that they don't have anything to say. Uh, and and we're talking we're talking about now students. We're talking about young students who maybe in elementary, middle school, high school, but you also have over 20 years' experience in your work as dean of the College of New Rochelle, specifically dean of the school New Resources. You have had 20 years' experience, over 20 years' experience, 
educating adults. And I like to know, do you see those same parallels with adults going back to school and now having to be involved in the writing process and dealing with the anxiety of returning to school? Uh, yes, I, I see it in the writing process and more than I do in just in general the idea of returning to school. I find out that adults are eager to return to school. I did my doctoral dissertation on the adult writing process, hmm. and I, I can't remember now what the title is. That was a few years ago now, but I remember at least one of my working titles was Help for Adult Writing Students. <laughs> because they they were, this was the thing, I don't know, equal to, if not surpassing math. The verbal skills were wonderful, but when you said write this, and it was just like sweaty hands and absenteeism from class and so forth. So th- there was a lot of anxiety about writing, and uh, we in- we got involved in the writing process, and there was a wonderful course at the School of New Resources. I think maybe they still have the course. I'm not sure. Uh, but the, t- the, the uh, name of the course was a Translating Experience into Essay. Mm. And, oh, we just... We we had great fun with that course because we talked about, you know, metaphors of selves, uh, thinking about your life, you know, you know, creating this part of yourself or recreating or reliving it, you know, in the writing process and 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 then going through that that entire process of discovery of a topic about which then you can be more objective because most experiences, personal experiences, represent broader issues in the society. Mm. And so, you know, we had conversations about that, how you move from your specific experience to make a general statement that anyone would say, ah, that's me. That's reflective of my experience, and want to read what you're saying instead of, uh, you know, so what? <laughs> they used to yeah. tease me because uh, I said, "Oh, if somebody just read this without you making that general connection, they would read it and say, so what, Shungo?'" Hmm. <laughs> yes, and, and, and you know, let me just real quick. What is Cal? C A E L. Uh, Kale is the mm-hmm. Council for Adult and Experiential Learning, okay. and uh, it's um, a national association that's devoted to helping colleges, universities, corporations, and unions, and any other groups that are trying to meet the needs of adult learners. And and what is Middle State? Middle State is. Uh, the Association of Colleges and Schools that accredits uh, colleges and universities and secondary schools in the mid-Atlantic area of the United States. And by accreditation, it's it's the the um, 
process by which they get a stamp of approval so that the public knows that they meet the standards of education mm-hmm. that are generally understood as a, a good educational program. Now, as an inter- and the reason I ask you these questions is because as, an, as a person who's been involved in uh, traveling around the world, I know that you've been involved with Middle States and Cal, and you've been an international lecturer. Um, how have you interacted with both of these organizations? What has been your involvement? Well, with Cal, um, I was a member of the the board of directors for several uh, terms, three year terms, and uh, once served one term as a member of its executive committee. And in that capacity, I uh, traveled, as you said, nationally and internationally, and uh, I engaged in assessing the needs of adult learners, you know, telling, um, working with people who were just getting groups of adults coming into their institutions or just setting up an adult program or a retooling program in a union. For example, in the 1990s, I worked with the United Auto Workers and would travel back and forth to Detroit because Kale was helping um, them design a program for auto workers that were being laid off and needed to some retooling to get, you mm-hmm. know, another foothold and in, in economically. Uh, and I was a member of the, the, the design team for the curriculum for that, that program. Uh, I've traveled to Britain and worked with Kale's counterpart there and actually traveled throughout the U.K. um, and worked with, um, you know, colleges and universities uh, sharing what are some best practices in terms of of curriculum, in terms of student advisement, and, you know, kind of cross-pollinating some of the things we were doing. Because and and in your work and in your research, you know, uh, before I, matter of fact, before I ask this question, as you know, that because of the economy and the way things have been over the last, I would say, six seven years, a lot of adults have returned back to school to get different skill sets. Uh, some people are, you know, have entered into college for the first time, and I I remember you telling me this, and this is why I want to ask you about Kel, that there was research that 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 said. Uh, that when adults go to school, go back to school, that they, that research shows that, that their children, as a result or indirect result, become more interested in their own personal education by seeing uh, or, or attempting to follow what mom or dad might be modeling. Can you, do you remember that? Can you, can you, can you yes, elaborate I, on that? Yes. Well, well, the children are great beneficiaries, and... Um, in the sense that the the parents are role models, but also in the sense that uh, the parents are more broadly, um, well, educated. Uh-huh. That they're able, not only better able to learn themselves, but to guide the learning of their children because we live in in a world of knowledge explosion 
with research constantly, you know, uh, adding to the body of knowledge. And sometimes parents are at a loss as how to help. So one of the benefits is they're able to help their students. They uh, understand subject matters with their homework. They're able to better guide them about the college entrance process, uh, you know, what, what is the application process, uh, what is student advisement. When I went, went away to college, I didn't know the basic things. Like, I didn't understand advisement. What is that? Mm-hmm. Registrar, what is a registrar? What does, you know, uh, what is uh, matriculation? Uh, what what is uh, a, a bursa? I didn't know the bursa was like the business office where you go pay your bills. So all these things the the parent has now as skills and resources to guide the, guide the students as as they model to them how to be a good, dedicated, diligent student. Thank you, Walter. Two one three nine four three three six one eight. Press number one on the keypad if you have any questions or comments about what you've heard so far from Dr. Blake. Uh, we're going to take a quick commercial break, and when we come back, we're going to get into the conversation about how Dr. Blake began to develop this relationship with Rosa Parks, and we're going to talk a little bit about Rosa Parks' hundredth anniversary uh, of her birthday, and and what was Rosa Parks not only significance, but what was her message and what did she want us as a community to focus on? We'll be right back after this quick commercial break. Okay, maybe we'll be taking a break a little bit later on. I'm going to go ahead and just continue on with the discussion. And, um, again, it's 213-943-3618. Press number one on your keypad if you have any questions or comments. Dr. Blake, are you still there? I'm still here. Can I okay. just think about the, the, the adult learner, um, about the, the value of learning at any age? Yes. Uh, because I'm a great advocate of lifelong learning, and um, I've been watching this PBS series on the brain, and one of the things that I've learned is that, um, you know, I I learned in my past that, you know, practice makes perfect, you got to keep your mind active, and I thought any mental activity was, was just like you know, would keep me uh, active and and developing. But the new research shows that to learn, every time you learn something new, you generate millions of new brain cells. Mm. And I love my brain, so (laughs) I found this to be, you know, interesting. So I would just encourage, you know, listeners to, you know, get out and, and uh, you know, as adult learners, as young people, always be inquisitive. Try to learn something new. And, uh, I mean, for example, travel is um, is a great 
great for the brain because mm-hmm. you uh you, you have to learn your way around new places and and so forth it's it's like exercising when you start a new exercise and you're pushing your body to another level and yeah. so i wanted to say we we just be engaged in lifelong learning and encourage your children to learn 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 Absolutely, I, I, and, and we thank you for, you know, emphasizing that. And I think that, you know, I was going to ask you a question about what does the black community need to do to properly educate our children, but I think you just adequately and, and profoundly answered it. Um, oh. I, I, I do want to now shift focus and, and kind of talk to you about your work um, as dean of the College of Nourishell School and the Resources. And more specifically, I want to know um, – in that role, how did you come to meet and develop this relationship with uh, the mothers of the civil rights movement, Rosa Parks? Well, Mrs. Parks in the mid-'80s came to the College of New Rochelle to receive an honorary degree. And I was uh, serving as dean, and as dean, uh, a commencement is a very busy time. I was clearing students for graduation and rehearsing about 500 names that I had to say on the day of commencement, and I had my husband go to the airport to pick her up. And he met her in uh, a limousine, and Shango, you probably heard him tell this story, and he had this rosa, and he wanted her to say something that he could tell his grandchildren. He kept saying, Mrs. Parks, you know, uh, no, 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 don't rush to give me an answer. I'm going to tell this to my grandchildren, so think about it. So finally she said in her quiet, but I'm sure it was a little sarcastic way, well, I'll tell you something you don't know. The name of the bus driver who uh, had me taken off the bus was James Blake. (laughs) And so... He was really uh, taken aback, you know. She she kind of like, you know, put him in his place, and he he came back with, well, that bus driver took you off the bus, and this James, I mean that James Blake took you off the bus, and this James Blake is going to put you in a limousine whenever you come to New York, and wow. so together he and I made good on that promise, and a friendship developed. Wow, and wow! I mean, what was what was working with Rosa Parks? I mean, what was that like? Well, it was an honor. It was a, a humbling experience. Um, it, we, you know, in working with her, I I came to know her as as the mother of the civil rights movement. Um, as an activist for social justice, as a woman of humility and great strength, and most of all, as a woman who loved children. Mm. And that was something that we had in common. And we also had in common the experience of growing up uh, under Jim Crow Mm. in uh, Louisiana. And I, I had a an experience, you know, similar to Rosa Parks when I was 15 years old and the bus driver was going to put me off the bus because I wouldn't get up because 
I, you know, all the the uh, they had staggered schedules. Uh, they would let the white students out at one time, and then uh, maybe an hour or two ahead of us, and then the black students would get out of school so that the bus would be filled with white students, and then they would all go get out of the way, and then the black students would come through. And this white girl got on the bus. And I was on the very front seat because I didn't go in the back because it was so noisy it would make me dizzy. <laughs> and she stood right by me, and the bus driver demanded that I give up my seat, and and I just didn't. It was just something that I was indignant, something inside of me. You know, it's just something just rose up inside of me, and I said, I'm not getting up. And he threatened to have a policeman take me off the bus. But uh, thank God when we got to the corner where the policeman usually stood every day, he wasn't there. And so it's these kinds of experiences that we shared that made uh, a a, a deep and, and profound, I guess, connection between me and her. And and. As being, you were very instrumental in the naming of one of the schools at the School of New Resources. There's a school in Harlem and mm-hmm. it's called the Rosa Parks Campus. Um, uh, for my listening audience, the Constitutional Rochelle has uh, the School of New Resources, which has five to six satellite campuses throughout the boroughs of New York. And right. one of the campuses um, is called the Rosa Parks Campus. Now, I was I was fortunate enough to be there when uh, the school was uh, dedicated to Rosa Parks campus, and she actually came to the campus, you know, for the ceremony. Uh, what role did you play in that, and what was that experience like, and how did she feel about having the school named after her? Well, she was as proud as she could be. Uh, as whenever she came to the city, she would say, how is my campus? Mm-hmm. And if her schedule permitted, she wanted to go by. No, she didn't say by campus, my college. Mm-hmm. Uh, she she wanted to go by the college, and I have a vision of her sitting in the, the television studio uh, that we had there at the Rosa Parks campus among the the uh, equipment. And I know she and I took some photographs in that, but it, the, 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 the picture is in my mind, and that, that's just a wonderful memory and um she for the the occasion of the the uh, dedication of the campus we had a, a blue and white button that says I love Rosa Parks and I wear mine uh especially on her birthday and during February and during March Black History Month and this year throughout the year because it's, it commemorates the hundredth uh anniversary year of her birth. But uh, she used to, you know, have her assistant, Elaine Steele, uh, a personal friend of hers since uh, since Elaine was 16 years old uh, throughout the rest of Mrs. Park's life. But anyway, they would write and say, we want some of those buttons. And they would, they, wherever they went uh, across the country, they would wear the buttons and, you know, talk about Mrs. Parks College. Mm. 
Yeah, and then also the the um, the campus at the time it was established in, around 1987 was uh, 80% women of color, and they were the women that we were talking about who were returned to you know school to make a better life for themselves. And Mrs. Fox generously lent her name you know, to that struggle to gain a foothold. And the students, you know, was were excited to study under the banner of Rosa Parks. And when I would step into the campus, there was a big banner and their motto at the time. I haven't been to the campus recently, but it said, when Rosa Parks sat down, we stood up. Mm. It was just a, a, a wonderful thing for the students, for me, and for the, um, you know, for the college. That is a wonderful story. Um, I think about Martin Luther King Jr. And I, one of the things that I think about is, uh, for some reason, uh, the only time that uh, the thing that we most associate Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. with is I had a dream speech. And 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 while that speech was great and significant in terms of the the history of uh, not just our people but this country, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was so much more than just a, I have a dream speech. I mean, he went on to make several speeches after that, and he continued to grow and develop and evolve as a leader for our people. When we talk about Rosa Parks, we often talk about the fact that she did not give up her seat. And that was a significant spark. Uh, but we know that that's not the sum total of who she was. And what I'd like to know from you, since you've spent so much time with her and worked closely with her, what is one or some of the biggest misconceptions about Rosa Parks? Well, one was that the the I guess the one that has been popularized and has so many myths, but uh, that her feet was hurting that day. <laughs> <laughs> and I I heard her say, and you know, with her, but you know, there was a Donahue show where she just said it to the public. She said, "Yes, I was tired that day. I was tired of being pushed around." Mm. And so that that's one of the big myths. And another is that uh, her activism started on December 1st. And uh, actually it started back in the 30s because her husband, Raymond Parks, was um, involved in, you know, working to free the Scottsboro Boys, some young teenagers who had been accused of raping a white woman, and mm -hmm. all the evidence said innocence, but they, as you probably know, because you can Google this, they were kept imprisoned for years, but the, he was, you know, involved in, you know, fundraising and, and working to help to get them freed, and of course, Mrs. Parks working alongside him. And then she was, before December 1st, she was secretary to the NAACP, and she started the youth committee of the NAACP that grew into a youth council, mm. and she used to take the young people to the libraries, and she would, which was segregated at the time, 
she would read to them, but, you know, you'd run out of books very quickly. I remember when I was growing up, I had an old book of romantic poets that uh, someone had given, a white woman that my mother cleaned house for had given to her, and, and a book happened to be left in there, and I read that book over and over. And then I read the Bible. But there were not a lot of books available, and so she ran out of books to read to the children. She would take them to the library to check out books, even though she knew that they couldn't check out books because they didn't, you know, serve the Montgomery Public Libraries, didn't serve uh, black children. Mm. She would tell them to be polite and to, you know, make sure you dress neatly and be mannerable, and when they deny you, then we'll leave, and then the next week or so they'd be right back to check out books. Mm. And then she, when after the uh, 19th, uh, what is it, the, the Supreme Court decision, Brown versus Board of Education, she studied, and I can't think of the name of the organization right now, uh, uh, Shungo, but with Fatima Clark at this place in Tennessee, and uh, they were trying to strategize as to how to implement this the new Supreme uh, Court decision. So she was cool. engaged um, prior to December 1st. And so she led a life of activism, and in fact, um, and it, I, I, I've heard... Before you go to the next comment, can I say, and these things I'm saying, this information, I don't know why the, the myths persist except that that's what somebody wants. Because yes. if you read Mrs. Park's book, My Story, or any other number of books, you you can find out. The, the facts are readily available. Yes, and, and I was just sitting here thinking that, um, what well, I'm thinking, but I, I, I believe I, I heard from, um, uh, I don't know if it was you or Ms. Still or one of the many people who worked with Ms. Parks, that Ms. Parks really wasn't the first person to uh, refuse her seat, but, but it was because of her activism and her involvement and her being known in the community that that when she did it, it created a, a automatic outrage because of the work she was already known for doing. Is that is that correct? Am I, am, am uh, I understanding that right? Yes, she she was uh, – it wasn't her activism. Why? Well, well, first of all, let me say, you probably heard her talk about other people uh-huh. who had uh, not – refused to give up her seat. I mean, the person I've heard, I've, whenever she would get up to speak, instead of talking about what she did, she'd always say, well, I wasn't the first to do this. Mm-hmm. And she would talk about uh, young people. I have a, a video of her speaking at Borough Manhattan Community College, and she was talking about, uh, you know, a 15-year-old girl who... Uh, had been dragged off the bus and and how terrifying that was for this this person, and she always catalogued what others had done, mm-hmm. so uh, it 
wasn't, uh, you know, she she always recognized, you know, that there were many others who were in the struggle. Okay, but what was the second part of your question? No, I was just saying that it was a, it was more of a statement. But I just want to make sure that we have the facts right. That that part of the reason why um, she was the lightning rod for the Montgomery bus boycott was because of who she was and how valuable she was to the community in Montgomery, Alabama, that she was a known person and a person of of, of, of consequence based upon her prior work. Well, it, it wasn't her activism. Okay. Although she was active, and there was no doubt about that, but her character was beyond reproach. Mm. And that's what I meant by her being a quiet, a dignified, um, um, a, a God-fearing woman, you know, who had, uh, who held high standards for herself of how she carried herself, and and so since she had this quiet, gentle way of getting things done, then th- there was kind of like an outcry. It was like, oh no, we know Mrs. Mm. Park. She's not that kind of person. She's yes. not a rebel rousing kind of person. And so that's oh. what that's what stirred people. Uh and then uh some of the people uh w- w- go through the, the assassination. Are you there? I'm here. Yeah. But they couldn't do that. They couldn't point to anything in Mrs. Park's character. Wow. They couldn't point to blemishes on her records. There were people, uh, other people who were activists like her, but who didn't have mm-hmm. that reputation of being this, oh, my gosh, not her. Have you ever had a friend like that? And you said, well, gee, maybe yeah. this, I know this one can stir people up, but not that one. That That person is, that's a sweet person. Why would you, you know, why would they do that to her? Absolutely. I think we have a caller on the line. Um, caller, what is your, where are you calling from? What's your name and what's your question? Hi, this is Sharifa, and I was just calling to first thank you for having this program on, um, and, and thank you, Dr. Bessie Blake, for, you know, sharing your, your experience with us. It's very inspirational. And um, I just remember growing up in elementary school when we first learned about Mrs. Walter Park, they always stated that, she didn't want to get up because she was tired, physically tired, her feet was hurting. And also they always painted a picture that she was a much older woman um, when that actually happened. So I just want to thank you guys for clearing that up. My question is, um, if Mrs. Park was here today, what would you think, uh, what do you think she would say about where we are today in terms of um, coming as far as we came? You know, now we have the black president. And uh, what, do, what would you th- what do you think that she would say in terms of how far we came today? Thank you for your question, Doctor Blake. Well, I think she would be proud that we have a black president. She was proud of any stride that we made. Um, I was honored to to write um, Mrs. Park's official obituary, and I. Um, in doing my my research and just reflecting back, 
one of the things she said was, but we've just come up and stepped our foot on the road to freedom. I don't mm. think she would feel like, okay, now we are accomplished. You know, as long as there uh, are people in the world who are being mistreated, uh, she would say, there's work to be done. Mm. Mm. Well, we'd like to thank Teresa for that call. And uh, it, 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 it brings me to a question about her life work. I know that she started an organization along with Elaine Phil that was very dear to her. And I wanted to know, can you tell us a little bit about the about the Rosa Raymond Park Institute uh, for Self-Development? Uh, yes. The Rosa Raymond Park Institute for Self-Development uh, was co-founded by Ms. Elaine Steele and Ms. Park in 1987, and the mission of that organization was to help young people uh, realize their full potential. Um, as I said earlier, Mrs. Parks uh, said that what she most wants to be remembered for is the work that she did with children. Mm-hmm. And so as a part of her her legacy, she sees the Rosa and Raymond Parks Institute working with children telling them about the civil rights movement, helping them in their academic endeavors, uh, uh, helping them to understand and love the environment. I think one of the things that people don't know about Mrs. Parks, and I discovered this when I archived, did the archiving work for her estate, is she was one of the first uh, uh, green, you know, uh, 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 peace activists, you know, peace for the environment. Mm. And she was a great recycler, you know. And one of the things she did with young people was, was to say, you know, don't be wasteful. Uh, you know, uh, the Rose and Raymond Parks Institute uh, works with young people on water projects. Like, you know, uh, you know, how long will we have? clean water in all places in the world. We don't have clean water. Um, They have this program called Pathways to Freedom. And Mrs. Parks, when she was well into her 80s, would go on these bus tours with students and retrace, you know, uh, the, the sites of the Civil Rights Movement and of the Underground Railroad. And that that pathway to freedom, they they really focus on uh, tracing the steps of the underground road, and it's almost like an experiential learning piece where the students actually get a chance to experience what that effort was in terms of uh, blacks uh, trying to escape slavery. Is that correct? 
Yeah, yeah, slavery and Jim Crow mm-hmm. uh, laws of the, you know, that existed into the 60s. That, yeah. that's, but I was, I had another thought. It just talking about the pathways to freedom uh, bus tours reminded me of what you're doing with the, the college tours because um, those bus tours, and when you take students from different backgrounds, from you know, and you take them into the South, and you take them to historically black colleges, they learn a lot about our history and about education, you know, empowerment through education. And so uh, there's a parallel between, you know, the college tour and the Pathways to Freedom. Yes, yes. Yeah, I mean, I I just want to thank you for giving us uh, this wonderful uh, lesson about the life of Rosa Parks. And, and again, um, as Sharifa was saying, that this has been, you know, we, we normally we have this perception of, of Miss Parks being in her 80s when she was on the bus and she refused to give up her seat and tired as she, she had some kind of ailment. But this was really about principle. And, and the thing that's been consistent as, we, as we're celebrating the 100th anniversary of her birth is that this was a woman who lived based upon a principle of freedom and justice. And, and she didn't just speak it. She wasn't, you know, you... We have had great orders in our community who are not a stir up a crowd, but she did it in a quiet yet powerful manner. And yes. um, I, I remember, and I'm just going to just talk about my own experience with, with Ms. Parks, is that I remember that this was a very humble woman and that she, you know, what you saw in the way in, in, the, in, the way in which she carried herself publicly was consistent in the way how she dealt with people and interacted with people. And I just remember her being very warm and engaging to me as a as a 11, 12-year-old boy. Yes. And she was like that with, uh, you know, when I traveled with her to many different schools from, uh, you know, uh, the schools in Queens to um, uh, schools in Harlem to... Uh, prep schools, country day schools in Connecticut, to suburban schools in Maryland. She was so accessible to to young people, and she she was always concerned about that learning, and she was instructive. And one of the things I want to say about the the, the other big myth hmm. about Mrs. Parks is in terms of December first, which is no doubt, an iconic moment, and we're all just so eternally grateful for the sacrifices she made starting that day. But it's like December 1st, and that's what we focus on. We don't focus on before or afterwards. And Mm -hmm. she didn't just fade into the sunset. After December 1st, she continued to work. Quietly, yeah. she didn't need to be in the spotlight to work. She was that kind of person. She continued to work with children uh, and to speak uh, about, you know, social justice and peace. And throughout, you know, uh, the country and abroad in Mexico, Japan, um, 
And these are things that we don't realize that she was she was an activist, a peace activist, a yeah. social justice activist all of her life. That's right, and 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 um, and uh, it must have been a blessing for you to be able to use your your position to develop this relationship to assist her in her work and and to make her her role of of sacrifice a little easier easier. And the reason I say that is I, I think one of the things that people don't understand is that when you stand up for your community in the manner which uh, she did. You pay a price. There's a sacrifice that takes place, and you 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 give up some of the comforts in, of life for a greater cause. Um, and I and I and I say that because I know that she she had to leave Montgomery, Alabama, and, and go to Detroit because of the people who were persecuting her for the stand that she took. Is that correct? That's right. And she had a loss of employment and. Then when her mother and her father were, uh, I mean, her mother and her husband were ill, she had to leave them in Detroit and go work for a while at Hampton uh, University. Uh It was a real uh, struggle for survival, Uh, but she didn't give up. She, She stayed focused on, you know, what it was she was called to do. Two one three nine four three three six one eight. Press number one on the keypad if you have any questions or comments. Dr. Blake, I want to thank you for giving us a a lesson on the mother of the civil rights movement, and and this is information that is that it's in the public domain, but it's not often talked about or praised enough. And so we thank you for for giving that, giving us this, and and we're going to make sure that this interview gets out there. We're going to hit the social medias and let people know because. This is critical stuff, and, and and this is Black History Month, and, 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 and when we teach, now I'm going to go back to education, to my teachers out there, this is great information to, to, to research and then to teach your students in your classroom and then have them do a writing process about Rosa Parks and then connect it to themselves. Have them do a text-to-self connection around the life of Rosa Parks and then the life that they want to see for themselves as young people. And since we're talking about text, I, I can't close this interview without uh, talking about and giving you, Dr. Blake, kudos for uh, your first book that you wrote and, and the fact that, that you are an award-winning author. Tell us about that book and, and that award. What was the name of this book? The book <laughs> uh, title is Speak to the Mountain, the Tommy Waits mm. Story. And uh, it's a family history written uh, from the perspective of my mother, and it chronicles the uh, history of my family uh, two generations back into slavery to the new millennium. Mm. It it, it, uh, just talks about overcoming uh, those mountains too high to climb that Gordon Parks uh, mentioned in his forward to the book. And mm. I'm just uh, so pleased that in, in 2007 it received the uh, USA Book News National Best Book uh, Award. And and let me say, everybody who's read this book, Speak to the Mountain, that I've spoken to has said that that book has been an absolute blessing to them. 
And um, we need to do, you know, all of us need to tell our family stories. And, 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 and I know we have a great oral tradition as a community, but we have to also find other means and other forms of uh, of telling our stories. And, and I guess that's where the writing process comes comes in, as you had said before. We're, we're great at verbalizing it, but we have to put it in writing so that we can have it as a documented form of history. And so I yeah. encourage people to get in touch with Dr. Blake and find out how they can uh, get that book, Speak to the Mountain. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the reasons I wrote the book was because uh, my children are in three age groups, and I would tell one child the story, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of verbalizing. And uh, then a few years would go by, and i said, you remember that story? And i said, no, you didn't tell me. Shango would say, you told Canary, who's five years older than I am. Mm-hmm. And I have, you have brothers and sisters five years younger, and I thought I had told them, but instead I had told you. So then I said, you know what, I need to write this down so that my children will know their family history. And when people read it, they said, oh, no, this is a broader uh, uh, audience needs to read this. And uh, it's a fast-paced book that people tell me it reads like a novel. <laughs> yes, and and I know you're you're currently finishing up another project, another book, your second book, uh, uh, and that should be coming out soon. And what's the name of that book, and and what is this this book about? Well, again, it's a, a family history, and this time I'm taking a look at my hu- husband's family. And the working title of the book is God's Bad Boy. And I came up with that title because uh, many of you who know Professor James Blake know that he's an activist. And I was telling my younger daughter, I said, you know what, Roshana, your father is a bad boy. (laughs) I meant it in the sense that, you know, he stirs up trouble. But I said he's a good bad boy because what he's doing is for the good of others. He's always taking on someone's case and trying to help. And I said, you know what, he's God's bad boy. We, and, can't, we, uh, can't, we can't wait to find out about God's bad boy, but I have to interrupt you because we have a question in our chat room. And the okay. question in the chat room is, it, it says from uh, organization Save Our Children, Enough is Enough, uh, please ask your guests, how can the civil rights tactics help to uplift the urban community today? How can the civil rights? How can the, how can the tactics used in the civil rights help to uplift urban communities of today? The the, the civil rights taxes or? I no, tactics, tactics, I guess strategy, tactics. Oh, okay, all right. Well, I I think um, in the sense that, you know, um, well, I'll just talk about Mrs. Park's strategy because, I I mean, that's my closest involvement in terms of of the the civil rights. The longest part of my my life has been working Mm -hmm. with her. And it's, it's by working with children. By getting involved in the community, by starting where you are and saying, 
I have something to offer. We have so many resources in our community. And one of the strategies of the civil rights um, movement was all of the different organizations setting aside their individual missions and saying, we're going to come together around this. Mm, And we're going to make sure that everybody is doing something to help our children because I think the only way we can really save our communities is by focusing on our children and doing something, not not just saying, well, here, I have my house and I have my education and I have my car and mm-hmm. I'm living a good life. No, we all have to give back. Each one has to be involved because none of us um, can move forward. That's so you know, true. You have the best education in the world and the biggest car and still be stopped and frisked. <laughs> You're absolutely right. That's an excellent point. Well, let me ask you, since you've done all of this work and you have all of this this, 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 this relationship and experience with the Mother Civil Rights Movement, is there a possible book coming out about Rosa Parks and you? There is a possible book. <laughs> there is you heard a possible it here. Book. Wait a minute. You heard it here first. Yes, on there's Radio. a possible book. Uh, you know, I have a wealth of materials. I have home videos. I have photographs. I have uh, the what I've learned from archiving the estates. I have notes. I have memories. I have a very good friend and Miss Elaine Steele, and she and I have talked about collaboration. And so we just have to get our schedules together and get it done. So it's possible. Well, listen, let me just tell you, uh, from our chat room, the the, the, uh, the gentleman or young lady who asked the question in response to what you said said, yes, yes, thank you, in reference to starting where you are. Dr. Blake, you have been a wonderful guest, and we really thank you for being on True School Radio, we got to have you come back and give us more information, I mean, about a number of things, education, Ms. Park, we didn't even get into Gordon Park. I mean, that's that's a, that's a whole other interview. Um, and, and I just want to know, um, if people want to get in touch with you, uh, find out about how they can speak to the mountain or have you come talk to them about the life of Rosa Parks, how can they do that? Uh, they can reach me. Uh, email me at bb at bessieblake.com. That's bb at bessieblake.com. Okay, so you heard it, bb at bessieblake.com. If you would like to get in touch with Dr. Bessie Blake to have her come out, speak to your group, or give you information about what's happening with the celebration of Rosa Parks as we move forward, or just find out about the books that she will be uh, releasing in reference to the, 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 the stories of our community. Um, I want to thank you again, and I want to remind our audience that the purpose of True School is to analyze issues but to develop models for solutions. And if you'd like to get in touch with me, you can uh, uh, reach out to me by going to www.shungleblake.com or at shungleblake or go to my Facebook page, uh, which is uh, Facebook slash shungleblake.com. Uh, this has been a wonderful interview. We thank Dr. Blake again. 
Uh, this is True School Radio here on the Keys 107 Network. Of course, we'd like to thank uh, our audience for listening. we also like to thank our producers, Brother James, Brother J.R. Strong, uh, and Sister Rafika for uh, working the engineering boards, and Dr. Bessie Blake, thank you again for our guests. Yes, and may I say, it was an honor to be here, and I'm so thankful for this forum, the True School Forum and the blog radio, uh, for having this resource for the community. So thank you for having me. Thank you again. This is Keys 107, your host, Shungo Blake. Until next time, peace. Now returns us to True School with your host, Samuel Blake. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.